the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Welcome to this episode featuring our amazing nomads and this time we feature Australian Ed Kavanagh. Ed travelled 23,500 kilometres overland from Adelaide in Australia to London in the UK, making connections with people whose family and friends would serve as lifelines and he was constantly surprised that no matter where he was in the world, help was always on offer. Yep, Ed left Adelaide earlier this year in his 99 Magna, drove north selling his rust bucket in Darwin and then what, Ed? Um, well, yeah, the intention was uh, certainly to leave the Magna behind yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then just keep going all the way to London. It was this trip I'd wanted to do really since I was a little kid, which was to go uh, all the way from my hometown of Adelaide um, to London, basically the opposite end of the earth through as much as of the world as I could. Um, and obviously overlanding is the best way to do that. And, and where possible, I avoided the plains and decided to, once I was in East Timor, island hop uh, throughout the Indonesian archipelago as much as I could. And then once I got into Singapore, it was basically overland all the way uh, from there. So you walked across Singapore? I did walk across Singapore. It was a, <laughs> there's not too many countries in the world you can, you can walk across, uh, Singapore being one of the very few. Um, I was also really frustrated with myself at the time because I uh, endeavoured to catch no planes after going to East Timor and very frustratingly ran out of time in Indonesia on my visa and basically got booted out and had to jump on a plane to Singapore. So I was really ruining my, my mistake um, and almost sort of punished myself by uh, conv- you know, committing to my overland ideals and, and decided to walk across an entire country. Uh, so that, 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 that would have taken half an hour then. <laughs> Look, it was a beautiful daytime stroll. It only took yeah. about eight hours. And yeah. to be honest, I've never been a big fan of Singapore. Uh, I don't dislike it, but it's just a bit too familiar to home. And um, it was a pretty interesting way of seeing that island. There's uh, some parts in the north that are very different to what you what you see in the south of that island. Um, uh, it was actually kind of opened my eyes to, the, to that country a little bit more. Well, you've got some stats here. 23,500 overland Ks, kilometres, 242 days, 36 countries, 28 currencies, 26 languages, 83 buses, 23 shared cars, 14 trains and seven ferries before you got to London. You've got to have a few stories to share along the way. Look, for sure. And I I must say, when I set out, I wanted uh, to catalogue it pretty in, in some intimate detail. Um, and I thought that'd be really fun, you know, coming towards the end and having this sort of laundry list of statistics and uh, and data about this sort of trip. Um, in the end, it got really silly kind of collating that and, and having this, looking at it through this statistical lens. It kind of became um, irrelevant, really, in the context of the broader things I was getting out of it. Um, I mean, there are many, many stories to tell. I mean, the, really it's difficult to know where to start but i mean broadly speaking what surprised me um about traveling in this fashion is how straightforward it really is it can look like this absolutely daunting um prospect but really linking a to b the whole way through is a pretty straightforward process and there's just endless accounts of you know people wanting to give you a helping hand along each way um you don't know before you set off how you're going to do this it's an entirely improvised endeavor um, and really the whole time I kind of relied on, um, you know, the assistance of local people to, to, to put me in the right direction. And uh, that method really guided me across the entire planet. Well, give us an example. In what way did people help you? Well, a good example uh, happened immediately as soon as I got into East Timor. Um, we 
I went there with very little knowledge about that country. And I went through over 30 countries on this trip and it was hard to, to develop a, um, you know, expert level understanding of each place before I went there. So I really went in blind there and um, had a determination to see outside of Dili, which is where most people go. There is a lot of, you know, expats and foreign NGO type workers in the capital there. Um, but I wanted to see Mount Ramallah, which is a, the highest peak in the country. Um, very quickly after, you know, letting locals know that that was my intentions, people were quite um, enthusiastically uh, keen to help me get up there. Um, after being in Dili for a couple of days, I uh, met up with these two, um, this new newlywed couple, Antonio and Kiki, they were called. Um, and, you know, they came around to where I was staying one morning with a pickup truck and their entire family in the back and basically dedicated a couple of days to, to touring me around. Um, you know, the, the East Timorese Highlands. This is entirely off, off uh, just a conversation that we briefly had. Uh, and it was a good example really early on in the trip about how people do want to do this. They, they are instinctively, they're uh, kind of motivated to help people who they can see uh, need a bit of assistance. And exposing myself and making myself vulnerable to that um, was really rewarding the whole way through. There's got to be a level of trust, though, isn't there, on, on your behalf and on behalf of the people that take you on board? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that trust comes from experience, I think. Um, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of travel before this trip. This was certainly the biggest single trip that I've done, but I've, I've spent a lot of time travelling around the world. And, uh, you know, there's been times... Uh, the, the last trip I did, for example, uh, in Vanuatu, which is sort of late last year before I set off on this trip... Um, I got into a moment where I was, I was terrified and I didn't trust um, the people I was around. Uh, and it was through my kind of own ignorance. I was basically in this very remote uh, corner of an island and these locals came up to me bearing machetes and I, I, my, my ignorance really perceived that as a threat where it was just totally benign um, and they were actually were coming to offer their own assistance. And after, after that experience, I, I just realised that you do need to be wary. You can't be um, naive to, to real dangers, but almost every single time someone's coming to engage with you, it's through uh, curiosity and through a determination to, to help you out. Um, and having that knowledge and having that experience really means every interaction you have is, you know, it, it, you go into it with a pretty um, optimistic uh, frame of mind. In the article I read about you, you said Sydney is a gateway to every corner of the globe. And then you go on to talk about the people that you dined with, including a Mongolian throat singer who we featured yeah. in um, a previous podcast on Mongolia. Tell us about that. Is that true? You spoke to Enquire? Yeah, we spoke to uh, Buku. Okay, okay, okay. Well, we, so, yeah, before I left, um, and this is a trip that I've been planning for, for some time. Uh, I was living in Sydney before I left as well. And, you know... I, having done the travel that I'd done before, I know how absolutely valuable it is when you meet up with local families and connections from back home. Um, and I was going to some pretty off, you know, off the beaten path destinations, you could say, you know, rural parts of Mongolia, all across Central Asia, for example. Um, before I, I left, I spent several months just literally getting onto Facebook and um, sending messages really at random to people who were members of, you know, the Mongolian community in Sydney or the Kyrgyz community in Sydney uh, and letting them know my plans and that I'd really love to catch up with them before I left and, and perhaps get some of their connections um, all across the world. And the, the, these uh, connections that I made through this process, which only really happened over a few months, um, they really served as my, my beacons across the entire world. I had some really great experiences staying with people, um, you know, in Malaysia, in 
China, in Mongolia, uh, all across Central Asia uh, and Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan in particular, uh, and then all through the Balkans as well. I was really lucky to be basically housed by, you know, connections I'd only very superficially met um, back in Sydney. And, yeah, it really just validated my, my kind of knowledge about how um, intimately connected Australia is to the entire world. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's just was, was really fascinating way of exploring the planet, doing it through those connections you made back home. Using Facebook, what it was originally designed for. Awesome. <laughs> well, exactly. It's kind of, you know, I would probably be pretty happy with that. Uh, yeah. That, that uh, use. Okay, tell us about Tajikistan and the scene of the indoor volleyball incident. <laughs> yeah, so this, I've, I've, you know, a few chats I've had after I got back, um, some, some people have asked, you know, what is the sort of thing that stands out? I think some people want or expect there to be some dangerous, crazy episode that, you know, saw me hanging off a cliff or something ridiculous. Um, for me, there was this one experience that happened in Tajikistan, which re-emphasized just how absolutely familiar uh, kind of everyone's experiences of life can really can be. Um, I was in this very, very remote village. It's called Sukhavand. It's, you know, a few hundred people that sits right on the the border with Afghanistan uh, in the deep south of the Pamir area. Um, and I was lucky enough to be housed by a family who had picked me up along the way and I ended up staying staying with them for a few days. And they had two young kids who really reminded me of myself and my brother. There were two young brothers about seven or eight and, and 10 or 11 years old. Um, and the older one was just a mad volleyball fanatic and his dream was to go and play volleyball for Tajikistan. And he uh, was just always running around with his volleyball and like any you know bit of rubbish, a tennis ball, whatever, um, you know, volleyballing it over the rafters and all this sort of stuff. Um, and one day I was just sitting there reading a book in their living room and, uh, you know, him and his younger brother were engaged in this rally and the inevitable happened and they knocked down this you know, precious family portrait, smashed all over the place and the kids just went into action freaking out. Uh, and, you know, they were cleaning it up madly, looking at me, kind of willing me not to dob on them, which I didn't. <laughs> Good boy. Um, yeah. And they cleaned it up, put hung, rehung it and hoped their dad didn't notice. And we, we were at dinner later that night. And, you know, they were kind of smiling and giggling with each other and kind of saying, you know, we've got away with it, we've got away with it. Um, and when I was looking at that, it was just really interesting because I was in basically the most foreign place I've ever been in my life. And I was watching this scene from my own childhood being played out, you know, in real time. I mean, I did the exact same thing playing cricket and football in my living room. And, um, me and my brother had our own coded language. And it was one of those moments where you just realise how absolutely familiar our experiences can be, even if... We're separated by, you know, half a continent and uh, a different language and everything in between. Nice story. Yeah, it's lovely. Now, you also met refugees. I did. Um, that's something I'm really curious and interested in uh, just as an Australian. It's obviously a very um, controversial and difficult issue in Australia. And, uh, you know, it was it was really interesting to me um, seeing not only in our region there were a lot of ref- refugees. I mean, I did meet some in Indonesia. I had a really good chat with uh, an 18-year-old. Um, Hazara refugee who was stuck in Indonesia indefinitely as there are about 15 to 20,000 other refugees at the moment. Um, and he dreamed of coming to Australia like so many do and had been really told that he, he wasn't able to for the next 15 years. So he'll be, he'll be waiting in Indonesia um, without legal work or education status for that duration of time. And, you know, it really put, putting a human face on it and making friends with these people is, is really striking. Um, and then, you know, in the wake of the, the Syrian crisis at the moment, all through 
the Balkans, Turkey, um, and uh, the Caucasus. You know, there are, you just meet Syrian refugees everywhere. They're extraordinarily educated, um, highly motivated, uh, really, really great people. And it's just so unfortunate for them that they really, um, you know, uh, have been absolutely exiled from their homeland and, and have, are really trying to make their way um, just anywhere in the world that will have them. So that was a really eye-opening experience. It really pinned this trip to this moment in history as well. It's um, something I'll certainly look back on in years to come and, you know, know that I actually did see kind of face-to-face the, the reality of this issue that's gripping the entire world. So, so you came across refugee camps or do you just find people on the move or how did that happen? There's certainly, I didn't go to any uh, camps per se, but there are quasi camps basically all through the Balkans. There was, um, I mean, we're looking as we're recording this, there is, uh, you know, a lot of news about a migrant caravan in yep. Central America. Um, there is a similar occurrence going on all through the Balkans. Um, lots of Syrian refugees go through to Turkey and then continue all the way up to, um, to Hungary effectively, where they're, well, they're not so much anymore, but, but they were at the time. Um, and there are, you know, cities in, and towns in, in Bosnia and, um, and Serbia and elsewhere, which do have, you know, often hundreds of, of refugees camped out in parks, um, uh, just just kind of sitting idle, waiting for, for a chance to claim asylum somewhere. Um, and it's just an incredibly eye-opening thing. I mean, as I said, you, you go and speak to these these people and the, um, the Syrians perhaps even more than some other places are incredibly educated, smart, um, engaged, internationally focused and minded people. And it's um, really eye-opening uh, seeing it firsthand. You just paint this amazing picture of this experience that you had, but then you you end up in London. When you get there, did you reflect on all those experiences, those moments like that that really affected you? you It was a a weird sort of anticlimactic moment in some ways getting into London. I got got there at about midnight um, and, you know, went into a typically dodgy hostel like I'd been staying in in the entire year. And it it was, you know, I remember speaking to some people at the... the, uh, check-in and they're saying you know where did where did you come from what did you do and it was kind of a, a silly thing to explain to them well i just you know traveled in 150 odd things across 30 countries and 23,000 kilometers to get here i kind of didn't even really really go into that when i when i got there i was so ready to go home to be honest it was um uh, i spent a couple of days in london and enjoying just being there but it wasn't really until i got on the plane and even now a few a few weeks after i've been back that um that you can start to really put it in perspective uh, what, what you've done when, when you're doing this trip it's it's really hard to find or to, for it to feel like one continuous thing it, often, often it feels like you're doing a series of small little little trips in between and, and you really need to look back on it with a broader lens um, to get a perspective about it as a whole and I think I'm still in the process of digesting that well you've documented it on your blog One Road to London surely you're not going to be idle for too long What's next? I'm I'm very much enjoying being back home for now. It's summer in Australia. Um, Adelaide is an incredible city to come home to, and I haven't lived here for quite a few years. So, look, I think my family will be a little concerned if I, uh, you know, elucidate my future travel plans in too much detail. But I'm certainly keen to see much more of our region. I think some of the places I really fell in love with this trip were uh, Flores in Indonesia and East Timor, and I really want to get back there as quick as I can. and I want to see more of the Pacific. I've done a little bit of uh, exploring and journalism work in, in Vanuatu, for example, and I'd love to, to see more of the Pacific, uh, more of my own region, and you know, really focus on even seeing more of Australia soon. So that's that's where I'm thinking. Beautiful. What car are you driving now that you got you rid, of rid of the bag? 
I, I, I have you know, I, I still have not owned a car from this century. I actually uh, pivoted from a 1999 Magna to a 1999 Commodore, which I got free on return to the country. So um, like, cars aren't my specialty, but I'm happy if it, if it gets me from A to B, then that's absolutely fine. That's right. It's a box with four wheels at each corner. And it gets you from A to B. I'm with you on that one. Yeah, Ed, look, great story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thanks so much for having me. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wellnomads.com and you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can download the Google Podcast app or ask Alexa and Google Home to play the World Nomads podcast. And don't forget, this information is only a brief summary. Read the full policy wording very carefully. Visit worldnomads.com, that's all you need to do. It's general advice and it may not be right for you. Catch you next week when we share some of our favourite chats from 2018. Amazing moments. Be inspired.